0: we cannot hide away from politics everything that we do is political for us to really make progress we can't continue being polite we can't continue doing things within our own status quo and there has to be political change so my tip is to recognize that everything is political and there's no hiding away from that fact there's no time now for us to be polite and to shy away from politics.
1: Hello and welcome to Saving Planet A. I'm your host, Gizem Eren. In this show, we learn together about sustainability, climate change, the circular economy, and jobs that help save the planet. My guest today is director and series producer, Eddie Frost. Eddie is chairperson at Proudfoot Limited, a production company based in Clerkenwell, London. Ever since his childhood, he has been passionate about the natural environment and conservation. He has directed documentaries for British and international broadcasters, as well as for major brands and NGOs. He now runs a small but impactful team, producing content gathered from all around the world. His work aims to shine a spotlight on those fighting for positive change and to explain complicated solutions to our global problems, for as wide an audience as possible. In 2018, Eddie directed a short documentary film called Ice Alive, where glaciologist and data scientist Joseph Cook takes a closer look at the microbial life that can be found all over the planet's glaciers and ice sheets. This rich ecosystem affects the melt rates of polar ice and snow and could be accelerating climate change. Eddie, welcome to Saving Planet A.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Let's start with Ice Alive*, Eddie. The film features Chris Hadfield, former commander of the International Space Station, and is narrated by a quantum physicist Jim Al-Khalili. It's an amazing film, by the way, I've seen it. The bit that struck me the most was Chris Hadfield's speech in the beginning. There's a lovely adage that ignorance is bliss. But in an increasingly complex world, knowledge may be your only means for survival and ignorance no longer becomes blissful. I can completely relate to this um, as it was the starting point of this podcast, actually, knowledge. Can you tell us about the Ice Alive journey, Eddie, and how it came about?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I First of all, I I wish those were my own words, I think. Chris Hadfield is one of those amazing individuals who is able to encapsulate kind of whole careers worth of thinking and 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 trying to figure out the way that we can communicate about the world, and he can kind of do that in one or two sentences. Sometimes he's an incre- incredible guy. So yeah, Ice Alive came about because I was working with Joseph Cook who at the time was at Sheffield University. Who's a geographer and microbiologist and an incredible explorer as well. I was working on him on, on, a, on another project and um, we had been filming together in Svalbard, an archipelago in very far northern uh, Norway. He, he was telling me about his science and I thought to myself, that it had a huge amount of poetry to his science. And that's always what I'm looking for is something visual or something poetic in the way somebody does their science and the way that they think about the natural world. And I said to him, it would be great for us to do a longer version, to do something that really explores that poetry. And in his case, the poetry was about these absolutely tiny, tiny micro microorganisms, and algae and all kinds of different microorganisms, basically, altering the way that our entire planet works. It it can get really complicated when we're talking about the natural systems that determine the way life evolves on earth and the way that we can keep existing on earth but if you can find very simple and elegant and poetic ways of helping people understand their perspective and their scale on earth then i think that's really useful and in particular i think if you can do it in a very visual way then that's very useful as well so his work as you really brilliantly um, described at the beginning in your intro, describes the way that microorganisms can alter the colour of the ice and snow in our Arctic and Antarctic regions, and, and even actually just high up on any mountains. They can make the ice and snow darker, which means that they can soak up more light which actually means that they will warm up the Earth. And what happens at the moment, um, and what has always happened, is that these white areas, if you look at them from space, they look like they're kind of white areas. They do a really great job of reflecting light back, which, in a sense, kind of cools down the planet. And the great thing that Joseph Cook always used to say to me was, it's the difference between wearing something white and wearing something black. If you wear something white, then you're, you're more likely to stay cool. But if you're wearing a black T-shirt, then you're going to get really hot. And these microorganisms, the more they proliferate, the more they grow, the more they cover an ice sheet, the darker they make the ice. So in other words, they, they, make, the, they make the planet
2: a bit just a little bit warmer.
1: What was the shoot like? How, how did that feel, being there? Yeah. That experience?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was incredible. We went to Greenland on the Greenland ice sheet. There was lots of travel involved, and lots of logistics. We were camping out right next to the ice sheet and going out onto the ice sheet every day. The shoot was incredible, because I'm always trying to find ways of cheat in a way and get make it so that my job is getting me in, into the kind of environments that inspire me, and it certainly is one of the most, you know, awe-inspiring sights you will ever see. Is just a almost a continent's worth of ice sheet out ahead of you. It it makes you feel small in the way that you do when you're looking at the stars in the sky or watching the waves on over the of the ocean crashing, crashing in on the beach, it it felt always inspiring. And for a filmmaker and somebody who is quite, I like to think of myself as quite a visual person. In other words, I, I feel the world quite visually. It, it just felt wonderful to be there.
1: It definitely comes across when you're watching the movie, you can get that sense of we are actually very small. It's like looking at almost like looking at space. It it really does hit you. Everything Chris Hadfield was saying and the science of it all, the music, it's it's it is really an incredible incredible film.
0: Yeah, it, the the making making a film has to have that and again this sounds a bit pompous and i'm not saying that i'm brilliant at it it's just what what i try to do there's a real alchemy and i think you can be really good at doing the story but not very good at the music or you could be really you could be obsessed with the story and not think too much about what the imagery is what i love about film is that it it's it has that you need to work holistically it has to have the alchemy of all of those different things coming together you you can't forget about the visuals you can't forget about the sound you can't forget about the music and you can't forget about the story all of them have to work in the same direction and it's really hard and it's difficult to think about when you're camping with with other people and nothing is dry because it's been raining even though it's really cold you don't have working toilets, of course, um, and oh. you, you know, and you're wor- you're you're eating fairly basic food all of the time. And sometimes you think, right, what's the root of least resistance to getting this film finished? But it that's why it's so wonderful to work somewhere that you find inspiring. And I've always responded to icy environments and and, and big vast expanses of wilderness like that. I was lucky enough to study abroad in Alaska, and that was one of the reasons during my undergraduate degree, that was one of the reasons I chose to go there was because it just, I knew it would give me that kind of awe-inspiring feeling of being out in wilderness and surrounded by wildlife and even potentially dangerous wildlife. So I've always liked that. Even, Even before then, I just was obsessed with going places where there weren't many people and and of course Greenland is probably one of the 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 biggest and best places to go to do that. And filming for Ice Alive just I, I'd feel tired and demotivated and then I'd unzip the tent and step out and then be an Arctic haired stood that, you know, stood there cocking its head, looking at me. And I'd think, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So that feeds into your desire to capture that and put that so that other people can see it and so that other people can kind of fall in love with what you're seeing.
1: Definitely. It's a beautiful film, Eddie. Thank you for making it.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. <laughs> no, I am, I'm, I'm proud of it. I, being, being a filmmaker is sometimes really hard because the, the kind of old adage really is that you never really finish something, you only abandon it. You don't, you kind of, there's no moment when you think, right, this film is finished and it's perfect. That's never, that never happens. So you're always leaving it. You always leave a project and a film feeling like there's th- things you haven't quite managed, managed to polish properly or finish off properly or not. You didn't execute exactly how you imagined it you would do. But Ice Alive is one of, one of the films that I can watch, Without hiding behind the sofa and watching through my fingers
1: <laughs> <laughs> how long did that take it Did it take to shoot? How long were you there?
0: So we were in Svalbard, so we included some footage from Svalbard that that was about four days, four or five days. and then in um in Greenland, we were there probably in total for about ten days, but in actual fact, for the filming, probably about five days. So in total, it was about, about nine days in, in total of actual filming. But then, of course, there's, there's all of the pre-production, the planning. I had a really great team helping me. I had a, a, a great assistant producer called Daphne who helped me on, on the film. And then the editing afterwards took a couple of months.
1: And you've also changed your day-to-day working style to be more sustainable. You mentioned it before. Can you tell us a bit about that?
0: Yeah, so um, I've always been trying to figure out how we can be more kind of environmentally aware in what we do. And it's actually very, very hard in my line of work um, because it very often requires for you to travel, for you to stay in hotels, for you for you to kind of use up more energy really than than is necessary and before the covid pandemic hit in 2020 i'd just finished writing a an internal uh, document for the company to try and figure out how we can try and tackle that and it involved basically a scaling back of travel from the uk and use of people more local and using talent local talent to produce films and 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 using things like Zoom and Skype to record interviews remotely and then of course, what happened with Covid was that we instantly had no choice um, and it was one of the only kind of positive things from my point of view that happened during that period. It was a very stressful time I'd just taken over the production company that I I now am chairperson for.
2: And we were struggling to kind of survive, to keep going, to keep making films.
0: And what it did was it, it forced us to do what I'd been intending to do, but been intending to do quite gradually. But we had to do it almost immediately. So now we've greatly reduced our travel we use local talent which has been really fulfilling and in many ways way better than it would have been previously we're using people who actually know the locations better than us and are more comfortable in in particular environments and we do things like you know one of the things we do is we use um, teleprompters and special contraptions that mean that we can do interviews kind of face to face but still over over Zoom or over any other video conferencing, um, so that we're on location and the camera is a proper camera. Um, it's not just one of the ones that you have in your computer. It just means that we've been able to, to travel less, to consume less, and to do things remotely from the comfort of, of our own office very often. So we just completely changed the, you know, the business model is, is, is different. We still do travel, we still do go out, we still, you know, sometimes there does need to be someone on location who will get the bits that are needed to make the film that is needed to be made. But, but that has been quite a major shift in our, in our business model is effectively being more local. Yeah, so that's been, that's been a really good effect of, of the pandemic. Probably the only one I could
1: think of. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds great, which uh, brings me to my next question. Creatives like you are increasingly applying their talents to fighting climate change and helping increase public awareness. And then on the other hand, there are PR and advertising agencies, filmmakers working with the world's biggest polluters and aiding in greenwashing a.k.a. making misleading environmental claims. In that sense, what do you think about the role and responsibility of media?
2: I would say this, but I think it's huge. Um
0: I think that the, the 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 most important element of fighting climate change is policy. And combining that with grassroots science. So actually just the grunt work that needs to be done by scientists to get the necessary information. But then On top of that, and nearly important, nearly as important is is behaviour. And I think that the real number one way of changing behaviour beside legislation is media.
2: I think we probably all know about the way that TV can inspire us or has inspired us to fall in
0: love with the environment not many of us are lucky enough or capable to go live among an elephant colony in africa for example Uh, but we are able to experience that um what that's like or at least experience how wonderful those animals are just by watching something on tv i certainly that's one of the things that inspired me to fall in love with the environment when i was a child sat on my the carpet in my front room, watching wildlife on one with the great david Attenborough Sir David Attenborough
1: he influenced several generations didn't he he
2: he has yeah so i I do believe that the the
0: potential for the media to 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 change behavior is huge and i I think that everybody should remember that and have that as a responsibility that works in
2: the media. You mentioned greenwashing and I think actually that's a really
0: it's it's a problem. But I do think that 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 as a society we're very good at sniffing that out. You know, we we all we all know what kinds of brands have been have been doing that and you can you can spot it. But I do, I do think that most of us are, do have enough kind of critical function to, to decipher when something is greenwashing. And I, I think in many ways we can sometimes be too cynical when it comes to greenwashing because there probably are a fair few brands who are kind of making an effort and we shouldn't be too cynical about that. We should try and encourage Brands to see that as an area where they can improve and where they can get more loyalty from customers. Because I certainly have brands that I like and I follow who are making an effort. So making an effort is something that should be applauded. But if a company is founded on the very basis of Taking from the planet and ruining the planet, and have been for a hundred years, or even 20 years, or 10 years, then that's where we should really draw the line. And we should not fall for the kind of nonsense that they, you know, they'll put something up on Twitter a nice film with children running through cornfields and dolphins jump, jumping out of waves. And it's really not based on any actual work being done. But I don't. I actually, you know, from my point of view, I don't think that that we as a society, as a society, especially in the UK, I don't think we fall for that very often. In a way, I think we have the opposite problem, and that is sometimes we can be so cynical about brands having a making an effort that
2: you know we don't um, we don't give them any any credit. <laughs>
0: Having said all of that, I am a deeply cynical person. So, you know, I am just as cynical as the next person. <laughs>
1: uh, a northerner. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Um,
1: yes, definitely. I agree with you. For me, uh, the level of disclosure and using performance metrics rather than vague words, that's what makes the difference for me. Yeah. Um, then that's when I
2: appreciate the effort. The cynic in me
1: always is at the front and is highly doubtful and sceptic of actual good intent.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I do think you know, having said everything I've just said, I do think that there, there is a, tr- there is a real problem when you, when you're in the supermarket, for example, and you go through. I, I think that there are some brands that are starting to realise that it's a great way of kind of having a usp saying that they are you know environmentally conscious brands and then if you kind of actually do read the small
2: print on the back they're doing they're not really doing anything they just have used a nice font I think, I think we've all been in the
0: supermarket and we've picked up a, a, a product and, and thought, ah, this looks like it might be an environmentally conscious product with its cosmetics or toilet paper or anything, you know. But then when you read on the back, you realize that actually they're just kind of playing off the notion of being environmentally conscious as a brand rather than actually doing anything particularly different to any of the other things you can see on the shelf. So it is important for us to stay vigilant and for us to read the small print always, absolutely.
1: Mm -hmm. Eddie, uh, I know you've been passionate about the natural environment and conservation since your childhood. Can you tell us a bit about the environment you grew up in?
0: Yeah, so I moved around a little bit when I was a kid. I was born in Leeds. And then we moved to Norfolk and the West Midlands, and then ended up back in Leeds when I, when I was around twelve. Um, but wherever we lived, my parents always took me for walks and took us camping, and we we were very often found ourselves in Snowdonia, in the Lake District, or the Yorkshire Dales, or, or Scotland. And my dad also was a quite a keen rock climber, so he used to take me climbing which I will pretend I really enjoyed now but at the time I found absolutely terrifying um but but what that did was it gave me an intuitive understanding of the way the natural world worked I I think it it meant that it would rain it would be windy it would be really cold and My dad in particular, that wouldn't really make a difference um, as to whether we should be going for a walk or not. We would just go out whatever the weather was and whatever (laughs) the conditions were. So, you know, we often found ourselves halfway up a mountain, crouching underneath a rock, freezing
2: cold, soaking wet, eating a Kit Kat to keep us going. That I think gave me a real understanding of human,
0: the human place and the human perspective within nature. You are forced to understand that you're quite a, you're kind of in many ways insignificant. In that same way I described earlier of looking up at the stars or watching oceans crash on the beach, that kind of feeling I think is really important for kids. From my point of view, I, I really believe that, that it gives you um, a sense of scale, a sense of importance or lack thereof, and an understanding of how wonderful the natural world can be and how worth how worth saving it is. Because there were, there were moments of euphoria that I would feel from really quite minimal things like sun breaking through the clouds. Um, probably usually because I was soaking wet and starving. <laughs> and, um, but, but, but those feelings you realize are only kind of possible in the natural world. And so, yeah, I think it gave me an intuitive understanding of what the natural world, how, how it worked and what was so wonderful about it.
1: I have friends who are rock climbers and the sense I got from them is that you learn to respect your environment and the natural world rather than trying to manipulate it.
0: Absolutely, yeah, and you've, embarrassingly for me, just managed to kind of much more succinctly put, <laughs> describe <laughs> what I was trying to say. So, I mean, that, that's, that is basically it, that you, you you kind of have to respect it and and when you're walking through somewhere utterly beautiful and it's damaged by i don't know a bit of bad building or or litter or um some bad planning or a noisy road then you think ah oh, that's a
2: pity and you think that doesn't have to be the case the more we get the the more humanity is
0: detached from the natural world the less you realize is being done to the natural world, if that makes sense. I think that it's so important to be shown the natural world and, the, and, and to be taken into, taken into not even wilderness, but just places that are emptier, where the main thing going on is nature, not human effects on nature.
1: Well said. Eddie, now I'll ask my final questions that I ask at the end of every episode and you can answer them separately or together, up to you. Uh, The first question is, what's giving you hope right now? And the second question is, what's your favorite tip for saving planet A?
2: What's giving me hope is seeing incredible scientists
0: and determined people working towards finding solutions. Unfortunately, I think we're at a stage now where the only hope we
2: do have for this planet, or at least human life on the planet, is that humans find the solutions. We're not.
0: We're no longer at a point where we think if we just stopped, everything would return to normal and we'll be fine. We do need to find solutions ourselves. So I see that all around the world. I'm lucky enough to be making films about these people. So whether they're indigenous people using indigenous knowledge or whether they're people using extremely high-tech, innovative, solutions to try and discover ways of solving our biggest problems they do exist these people and what they need is to be kind of supported and left alone to get on with it
2: and given funding and being and and to be supported whether that's through media or
0: whether that's through legislation both ideally
1: and maybe come on this show to be interviewed?
0: <laughs> yeah, I can give you a few names, I'm sure. Oh, great. So that, that's what gives me hope. There are people doing incredible things and they're dedicating their lives to it. The, the more I look, the more people there are. And of course, the younger people are, the more they realize the importance. So I, I hope... That as the demography of the world changes, and the power shifts to people who have different priorities, then I hope that we are in time to make the changes necessary to protect planet A.
1: And your favorite tip?
0: Oh man, my I'm I'm afraid it's a bit boring. Uh, my favorite well, tip, go on. <laughs> but it's
2: it's basically that. I would say that we we cannot hide away from politics. My opinion is everything that we do is political.
0: So I think that for us to really make progress we can't continue being polite we can't continue doing things within our own status quo and there has to be political change. change. So my tip is to recognize that everything is political and there's no hiding away from that fact.
1: Very good tip. So volunteer, donate, write to your MPs.
0: Absolutely. Um, recognize your own role in that, in your own role to to protest even um, mm-hmm. and, and to speak when there is a space. Uh, recognize the value of your own voice, particularly if you're an underrepresented voice. There's no time now for us to be polite and to shy away from politics.
1: Perfect. Very well said. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you a lot for being my guest.
0: That's my pleasure.
1: If you enjoyed this episode of Saving Planet A... I'd really appreciate it if you comment and subscribe, so that other people can know that we exist. Thank you again for listening.